All right. How are my North Carolina fans? How are my uh, Kentucky fans? All right. My name's Chris, and I'm uh, glad to share with you. I'm one of the campus ministers here with Campus Ministry. I, I always want to point out my wife, Rita, and my daughter, Bryn, and my son, Bradley, are there in the back. They're not always here, so if you're wondering who that, you guys have to wave now that I pointed at you. All right, they're in the back, so just wanted to point out that they're here. But tonight, we are going to continue to pour into the Gospel of John. Our whole journey this semester, as we worship at the well, has been to turn into different parts of the Gospel of John and look at encounters that Jesus, that people had with Jesus. And if you were here last week, you know that we were in John chapter 11. And we were talking about how Jesus had an encounter with Lazarus who had been dead. And who Jesus rose from the dead after waiting a number of days to go there. And the whole miracle that happened because of Lazarus being raised from the dead. And tonight, we're going to sort of take the next step and turn in the Gospels to the 12th chapter and look at what happens after Lazarus is raised from the dead. So I want to read to you parts of the end of chapter 11 and also part, the first eight verses of the Gospel of John chapter 12. So this is what it says. So it says, Therefore, because of what happened with Lazarus being raised from the dead, therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, And I'm going to skip down, but they're basically saying, we cannot let this happen. We cannot let Jesus continue to grow in his popularity. They were threatened by Jesus, and so they're trying to figure out a way to take Jesus out. And so starting at verse 54, it says this, Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. So if you get this, Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. There's this huge number of people that start having faith in Jesus and believing that he's the Messiah. And there's a huge swelling of interest in Jesus. And the opposition at the same time is growing. So Jesus leaves the area. Bethany was quite near Jerusalem. But then, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, so a couple of weeks have gone by, Many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremony, ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. And they kept looking for Jesus. Is Jesus going to come back to Jerusalem? Is he going to come as part of the feast, a part of the pilgrimage feast, to Jerusalem? And they stood in the temple area asking one another, what do you think? Is he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, they should report it so that they might arrest him. And now we turn into our scripture for tonight. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, back near Jerusalem. 
where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet. And she wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who, had later, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, as we get going tonight, as we turn into this scripture, I want to suggest to you that this beautiful moment with Mary and with Martha and Lazarus at this private party is a little bit of a picture of worship for us. That somehow in this encounter, especially with Mary, we can learn some things about what worship is and how we might respond to Jesus and what he's doing in our lives. And as we get started, I just want to ask you to, to claim this question and turn to somebody next to you and just answer this. It's a real simple question. What is one of your favorite smells from your childhood or from right now? What's one smell that you love? And turn to somebody next to you and say, share that with somebody. What's one smell that you love? <laughs> Campfire. Campfire. Right. I don't know. I can't talk. Uh, probably like Patrick Campfire. guys are good. All right, so you guys were, you did well with that. There's a lot of energy in here. Somebody shout out one of your favorite smells. One at a time. All right, I heard campfire. Barbecue. What? All right, we have bacon. All right, what did you say? Laundry. Clean laundry? All right. All right. Anybody else have a good one? One. Who? Louder. Coffee. All right, there we go. 
All right. Well, so I can't help when I read this passage to think about the whole idea of the smell going on in this passage. And so as we get going, I want you to think about what would it smell like as this was happening at this private party for Jesus. So I want to set it up a little bit. So this chapter is set right before the last week of Jesus' life. Before he is crucified in Jerusalem. Lazarus is raised from the dead, like I said. And there's this movement that's been ignited by what Jesus did with Lazarus. And at the same time, this movement's happening, the intensity is increasing. And Jesus can't move about freely. But now that he's moved away from Jerusalem and then been away for a while, now he's coming back intentionally because I think he knows what's going to happen and he's choosing to go to Jerusalem no ma- even though he knows what's going to happen. He is moving about not so freely and he's invited to his friend's house, Lazarus's house with Mary and Martha, and he's at this sort of private party thrown in Jesus' honor. They're celebrating. You can imagine, Lazarus had been raised from the dead a few weeks or a few months ago, and they're celebrating with joy and celebration, and we're right in this time that it's, we don't, they don't know this, but it's sort of the final week, the evening before Jesus takes the triumphal entry and leaves from Bethany and goes to the Mount of Olives and descends in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And this incredible response from Mary moves me, in some ways disarms me as we think about it. And I want to be careful as we get started because there's really three characters that are going on. Because you see, Martha, what's she doing? Serving. She's preparing the meal. She's like the host. She's got like gifts of hospitality through the roof. She's having a party and doing that. And Lazarus is also being with Jesus. And he's sort of witnessing and talking about all the incredible things that Jesus did on his behalf, how he'd been raised from the dead. I'm sure he had an incredible testimony. And then you've got Mary, who we often find at the feet of Jesus. Now, I have to qualify this because there's a lot of Marys in the New Testament. Have you noticed that? All right, there's five or six of them. And this is not... Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is not Mary Magdalene. This is Mary of Bethany. And what we know about her is that she's often at the feet of Jesus. In Luke chapter 10 is when she and her sister are with Jesus and her sister sort of scolds her for being at the feet of Jesus. And then in chapter 11 of the book of John is where she's weeping at the feet of Jesus because of what has happened with Lazarus. And now we see her again at the feet of Jesus, just responding to Jesus because of gratitude and her love for Jesus and her just utmost devotion to him. We see her doing this incredible act. And what I want to say to us tonight is just let's think about her actions and think about how that might motivate us in worship. The first thing is this, is I, I just want to put it up, is that She did this incredible, unconcerned action. Mary took about a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. 
And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So Mary does something that is culturally forbidden. And she, un, she literally lets her hair down before Jesus. And so she can use her hair to dry the feet of Jesus after she's poured out this expensive perfume on her. She so loves Jesus. She's so devoted to Christ. She loves him so much. She, this is just an incredible responsive action where she's unconcerned and unworried about everyone else. She just wants, has her eyes on Jesus and wants to glorify Jesus. She's not broken any laws of Scripture. She's not violated any of God's command, but she has sort of overridden a cultural norm. See, women weren't supposed to let their hair down except in private with their husbands. And she, out of this incredible drivenness to love Jesus, lets her hair down, and the room is filled with people, and she comes in during this party unconcerned about everybody else, and takes the perfume and breaks the bottle and pours it out, on, I'm sure, on Jesus' head, but also his, his feet. And she's just there. If you show the picture, you can get a sense of it. She's just loving and adoring Jesus without concern of anyone else. She's not bound by any set of rules. And totally surrendered to Jesus. And I just think it's a beautiful picture of her response to Jesus for what he's done for her and for her family and this incredible movement where she's not worried about anybody else. And I can just imagine the smell. Now something you have to know about me, some of you may have heard this story before, I've had the chance to preach on this a couple of times, is my house with Rita when I married her, her mom had some very significant, my wife Rita, when, when I married her, her mom had some significant environmental and chemical allergies, which she still deals with this today. But she almost de- um, died from exposure to chemicals and different things. So she lives a chemical-free, fragrance-free existence. And so in our house, we do the same things with unscented you know, laundry soap and all those different things. So we don't have a lot of scents in our house. And so when scents come, it's pretty strong because we're not used to anything. And so I want to tell you, when I put on cologne, like I've had this bottle of cologne here for like 15 years and there's barely anything gone. <laughs> and, and so this is what I do in order to not mess up our house. I literally go outside and I like take the thing and I spray it like that and then I like just jump through it. And then, like, if, if I'm feeling a little stronger, then I spray it on a Q-tip, and I just dab it right here and here. And that literally is all I need to do. And you can see how much has gone from that. Barely anything, right? I've had it forever. It still smells good. It hasn't gone rancid or anything. <laughs> all right. But I just want to let you know, so you can think of, like, this moment and Mary does this action and she takes this very expensive perfume that's said in different scriptures is worth 300 denarii. When a denarii is a day's wage, so again, 300 days of wages is what this is worth. It was made in India, found on the mountains and distilled down. I have some pure spikenard or nard 
in some bags. I had 30 bags of it, but it's so strong, it was making everybody sick. So I have Ben. He's going to hand around two bags and pass it through so you can smell it. It's pretty strong. It's a heavy, musky scent, so you can smell it. And if you're, don't open it, Ben says, but if you're brave, you can open it. (laughs) Just pass it through and you can smell it. Just smell it. It's so you guys can pass it through and be distracted while I'm preaching. But what I want to challenge you on tonight is this, as we keep going. It's not going to make you blow up or anything. All right, so where we're at is this. One of the things that we want to... One of the things I want you to think about is what does worship mean to you? And that when we come to worship, one of the things I think that we can think about is, what am I thinking about while I'm at worship? Am I thinking about all the things that I have to do? Am I thinking about who else is in the room? One of my hopes is that we can learn from Mary about her unconcerned action and putting her eyes just on Jesus. And when we worship corporately, or when you turn aside privately in worship, or as you live out your life of worship, that you could have Jesus as your sole concern. So one of the things that motivates me about this is just that kind of unconcerned action focused on Jesus. The second part about this is sort of this unspeakable gratitude that Mary is filled with, if you want to put that up. Mary had had this powerful encounter with Jesus. He had completely changed her changed the reality and it answered her prayers for her brother who had passed away and changed the family's reality. And in this party for Jesus where they're celebrating that Lazarus has been risen from the dead, she does this not performing for Jesus, not trying to score points, not trying to do anything else. She was just filled with gratitude and peace and overwhelming love for Jesus. She had found meaning and purpose in her life and found something completely unique in Jesus. She had been accepted and probably forgiven, loved in a way she'd never been loved before by Jesus. And what I want to challenge you about as we look at this as an example of worship tonight is our worship needs to be born out of the same kind of gratitude like Mary's was. If you put up that definition of worship, the best one that I know of from Louis Giglio in a book called The Air I Breathe, is first and foremost, worship is our response to what God has done in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us by his death and by his resurrection. Worship is a response. It's not earning points. It's not doing anything else. It's a response, both personal and corporate to God, for who he is and for what he has done expressed in and by the things that we say and the way that we live. So worship certainly is what we're doing here tonight, but it's also expressed for you personally and the way that you live out your whole lives 24-7. That's what worship is. It's not just about one hour on Sunday. And so as you think about why you come to worship, our worship is meant to flow out of an overflow of a changed life. 
of God's provision and the way that he's so completely provided for us. The way that God has answered him in faithful, why he is our rock and our redeemer. Knowing that God will never leave us or forsake us. And in a greater way, just worshiping God for who he is because he's holy. And we've never seen or encountered anyone ever like him before. God is worthy, as the song we've been singing recently is saying. He's the only one worthy of our praise. And the beautiful thing is, is that the, God, the king of creation, the God who created everything, the one who revealed himself in Jesus is also the one who reveals himself to us as our Abba, our Daddy, our Father. So one of the things we can learn from Mary is that she had this unspeakable gratitude for what Jesus had done and in the same way, you and I need to remember, what was our life like before we met Jesus? How are you stuck? Do you remember what it felt like to be apart from Jesus? And if you're still learning who Jesus is, I hope that you'll turn to him and look to him and see the love and the power and the new life that he offers to everyone. And that you will start to worship not trying to earn your way to God, but in unspeakable gratitude for what he's done so completely in Jesus Christ. The third thing I want to just offer up to you is that Mary is an incredible example of worship and unrestrained giving. I said already that that perfume was worth 300 denarii or almost a year's wages. It was an expensive perfume of nard. Most scholars believe the jar contained an expensive perfume made from balsam and spike nard. She pours this expensive liquid on him. Mary again sits at the feet of Jesus. It was customary to receive a refreshing foot bath from a visitor who made a long journey. But Mary goes way beyond that, anointing Jesus' feet with perfume and wiping them with her hair. Her behavior is an act of love, sacrificial, self-giving love. I'm not sure how we would respond to Jesus. How we would respond if we had been in the room with Mary but one of the things I know is, is that I think after Mary would have so completely poured out the perfume and wiped Jesus' feet with her hair, the proper response probably would have been silence. Just to let the moment stand on its own. But then there comes this challenge from Judas. The first words Judas ever speaks in the scriptures are these words. This is what he says. But one of his disciples, Jesus Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. But then we get a little editorial about what's really going on. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. You see, Judas knows the price of everything. We get a sense of that he's good with money and that he knows the, 
how much things cost. And we get a little window into his heart, which is giving us a clue of what's going to happen in the next few days with Judas when he betrays Jesus. Judas knows how much things cost, but he completely misses where the worth and the value needs to be in this story. As I read in a sermon, it said, Judas knows the price of everything, but the value of nothing. And Jesus responds to Judas. And he says, let her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now Jesus has cared incredibly for the poor. And what he's saying here is not to ignore the poor, but he's saying nothing from what Mary is doing in this moment is keeping you from going to serve the poor. But there's something greater going on in this moment, in this act of worship. You see, the money she spent on the flask of spikenard could have been her life savings. It was probably a great cost to her to get this perfume and to pour it out to Jesus. But she gives it to him because he's worthy of it. And it was her act of worship that she had prepared for, a present fit for a king. And in the same way, we worship the king. And as we respond to Christ's love for us and his work in his work in us each of us in our own unique way will give him things that are of value in our lives personalized for each one of us it's different let me tell you a story just just to on some of you guys have been in my office and you know i'm way into skiing right i have pictures all over the place it's always winter in my office well, a number of years ago, I was able to purchase a timeshare in Whistler, Canada, which is one of the best ski areas in the, in the world. And I loved it there. You ask my kids, they love it there, we love it there. And I had a rental going there. And during this time that I had this timeshare there, we owned a week, a month of ownership, so a quarter ownership. I started to feel a pull in my heart. Like, was this distracting me from other things I should be doing? And eventually I came to the conclusion that I couldn't be a campus minister here and own that property there in that way. And I sold it because it was pulling my heart in a different direction. And I felt like it was something I needed to give up. And that's different for you and maybe for some of you and throughout your life you're going to have different moments where you have to sell things or do things. I'm not saying that's for everyone, but that was in my heart. But one thing I want you to know is, is that what will be in common for all of us is that at some point there's going to be a radical giving to Jesus of something or someone that was important to us, laying them at the feet of Jesus so that we could claim and proclaim him and respond to him and 
Give him all the glory and the honor that he is the true king and master of our lives, not anything else, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says you cannot serve two masters, God or money. So here's the one thing I want you to hear. I don't know what your cost will be in worship someday, but at some point you're going to have to make a decision of what's primary in your life. Is it something else that you're going to worship or is it going to be Jesus? And one thing I want to make sure you know is that Jesus doesn't just accept things that are expensive. Although Mary gave a very costly gift to Jesus, he took delight in not how much the gift cost, but in her love and her attitude, her sincere sacrificial giving that she did that came from her heart. Jesus took more delight in two coins that came from a poor widow who cast those coins into a temple treasury than large sums of money that the rich had poured in. And I think somewhere in this passage, Jesus is sort of foreshadowing or God is sort of foreshadowing or using this moment with Mary to say, what God really wants you to give him is the thing most precious to you, which is your life. To let you use your life as a living sacrifice. I want to read you a story, an example of someone who lived this kind of spirit. Have you guys ever heard about the com- a company called Borden? Borden Milk, Borden Cheese. Have you guys ever heard of that? No? Okay. Well, back in 1904, 100 years, 110 years ago, a 16-year-old young man named William Borden was an heir to the Borden family fortunes. He gave his life to the Lord. And when he was in college at Yale University, he started an early morning prayer group for students. This gave rise to a movement that spread across the whole Yale University. By the end of this first year, 150 students were meeting regularly for prayer and Bible study. By the time he graduated, a thousand students were doing it. And Borden also started an outreach ministry to rescue men struggling with addictions and alcoholism from the streets and to rehabilitate them. After doing graduate studies at Princeton Seminary, Borden left the U.S. to be a missionary to China. But he never reached his destination. On the way there, he contracted spinal meningitis and he died. In the Bible, he left behind his personal Bible. He had written these words. One he wrote early on in his life. He said, no reserves, which meant he was all out. He was not going to claim anything of his family heritage. I'm going to follow Jesus with no reserves. Later on, I think when he was struggling with some of the different challenges and the sickness, he wrote, no retreats. I'm not going back. And and. When his family was returned, his Bible, they had realized that when he had, right before he had died, he'd written, no regrets. So do you think his life was a waste? Not in God's plan, it wasn't. Long after his death, the impact of Borden's life continued to be felt as other young men and women gave their lives to serve the Lord. And many, many people's lives were changed and people were saved by Jesus Christ because of his life. So I have a simple question for us in that same spirit. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets to learn from him. If you want to search on Google, there's a lot of cool stuff about him. Here's my question for you. What can you bring, big or small, simple or valuable, that God can use? 
What can you bring to release at the feet of Jesus? Because now is the time, right now, when you're in college, for you to say, hey, I'm going to take the flask of my life and I'm going to pour it out before Jesus. Can you think about that? I know you guys have lots of dreams and plans, but is Jesus primary and your motivation to worship and serve him primary in your life? And here's where I want to sort of uh, conclude. The last thing about Mary's worship was that she had done all those things I spoke about, but she had no idea of the impact. She had an unknown impact when this was going on. It says, leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You see, like I said in the beginning, it's getting close towards the end of Jesus' life. And I think Mary saw something coming. And anointing Jesus' feet points to something that's going to come. That in the next chapter, he washes the feet of disciples as an example of his humble service. And that Jesus, in the same way, will pour out his life as a very expensive gift for the sin of humanity. His gift wasn't just for the disciples. It wasn't just for Mary. It was for everyone. And there's also, as Jesus is getting anointed by Mary, there's sort of a prophetic statement or a prophetic act in what she's doing. Because the word Messiah in Hebrew literally means anointed one. And so as Mary is anointing him, now in these last days of Jesus' life that they didn't know, she was somehow preparing Jesus for his death and for his burial. And you can imagine, as strong as that scent was that I handed around just now, you can imagine if she poured out like 12 ounces of that on Jesus and wiped all over, it would have been a strong smell. And you can imagine through the week, of what happened with Jesus. Maybe occasionally he smelled that smell and was reminded of her love and her encouragement and her passion for him. You never know what God's going to do with your worship. It says in the Mark account of this passage, it says, Truly I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. So she has given glory to God throughout the centuries because of this selfless act of worship. And what I want to challenge you about is this. You never know, as you're living out your faith now in college, you never know what impact you're going to have and how it'll drift. It says in 2 Corinthians 2.14, it says this, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. What God wants to do is use your life as you pour it out in response to him in worship. God wants you to be a fragrant aroma of Christ where you live, 
on campus, in your family, at home, in your work, in your play. And I guess I want to conclude with one idea, is you never know how your impact will drift and who it's going to affect and when you're faithful and fully devoted following Jesus, how that's going to affect people. And I want to just finish with this final line. Is the fragrance of your life making people hungry for Jesus? Is the fragrance of your life making people hungry for Jesus? I pray you may have the courage to respond in worship in the same way that Mary did. Will you pray with me, please? Father and Son and Holy Spirit, I pray that through the lives of these students that a sweet fragrance of Christ would go out throughout this campus and to the ends of the earth and that you would love this scent and that you would find it beautiful, pleasing, and life-giving. May you draw others to Christ and may you meet these students in their worship. Lord, we thank you for your incredible gift of love. And we want to respond to you with our whole selves, our, our whole lives. So we pray it in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.